Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to especially thank Rick uh, Herman and Sean Kay, and also Randy Schweller for their hospitality. Um, we had a delightful dinner last night, and it was a good opportunity for me to catch up with old friends and also people whose articles and books have appeared on my course syllabi for years. So I, I am indeed honored to be here. Um, this talk, let me just uh, bring that up there. Can everyone see that? This talk is not actually about the book project on preemption and preventive war in U.S. foreign policy. It's on another project, as I'll talk about uh, in a few minutes. It's a bit unusual in two respects, judging from past talks which you've had in this series this past year. First, this is primarily a textbook project, not a scholarly book, which I'm going to be talking about today. And second, I'm still very early in the uh, process of doing the research and conceptualizing the research design for this particular for this particular project. So I welcome your comments, your questions. You will all be acknowledged at great length in the uh, perennial boilerplate acknowledgments uh, in the first uh, five pages of the book, along with my research assistant and my cat. Um, so I appreciate that. So basically, my talk is going to consist of three parts. First, I'm going to give you a little bit of the background for this project. Then I'm going to talk about the central arguments of the book. And then finally, I'll finish with uh, a few uh, remarks about my research design and methods. And then we can open up the floor for discussion and questions and answers after that. Now, as I said, this is a textbook project primarily. About a year ago, Craig Fowley, who is one of the social sciences editors at Rutledge Press, approached me, and he also approached Colin Elman at Arizona State University. Uh, he said that Rutledge was interested in doing a new series uh, on international relations theory, books which would be suitable for classroom adoption at both the undergraduate and the graduate level. And after several months of conversations and after several drafts of proposals, Rutledge awarded contracts for three such books dealing with political realism. Two of them will be written by Colin Elman. One of them will be written by me. Now, all three of them, as I said, aim primarily for classroom adoption, but we also hope, and the editors also hope, that they will have some relevance to scholars who are actively working uh, in the field. All three books share a common taxonomy of realist research programs, but otherwise they are proceeding on parallel tracks. Colin and I have been in some communication with each other about our respective projects, but these are very much our own independent, independent projects. Now, Colin's projects tentatively titled The Realism Reader and Recovering Realism. First, first one, The Realism Reader, is simply going to be an anthology of existing articles, existing book chapters, uh, very similar to existing readers or anthologies which are currently out in the field. And he has, to, has a whole uh, table of contents with uh, various readings, uh, the usual suspects, Morgenthau, Carr, Waltz, Mearsheimer, etc. His second textbook, however, is going to be an examination of the evolution 
of five different research programs within the broader family of realist theories of international relations, classical realism, neorealism, offensive and defensive realism, or more properly, the offensive and defensive variants of neorealism. What he calls rise and fall realism, or hegemonic realism, and then finally neoclassical realism. And he plans to evaluate all of them according to Lakatos' uh, methodology of social science research programs. My project, on the other hand, is going to be looking at the ability of different realist theories to account for variations in U.S. grand strategy since the outbreak of the Second World War. Like Collins' work, it's going to provide an overview, in my case, of four of those five different realist research programs, classical, uh, defensive realism, offensive realism, hegemonic and neoclassical realism. And it's going to seek to illustrate how different theories, or rather different hypotheses from theories within those particular research programs, account for the types of grand strategies, foreign and military uh, policies, which different administrations have pursued since 1940. And the final chapters will address questions about debates about the future of U.S. grand strategy from the perspective of those theories. And so the guiding questions for the book are quite simple. First, how well do particular realist theories actually explain variation and continuity in U.S. grand strategy since the outbreak of World War II. How well do particular hypotheses gleaned from classical realist writings or defensive realist theories or offensive realist theories or hegemonic or neoclassical realist theories actually explain what particular administrations did in terms of defining the national interests, identifying threats, and the types of foreign and military policies they actually enacted. And what are the weaknesses? What remains unexplained? Second question, what insights do these particular theories offer about the current challenges facing the United States today? What do they say about the future of U.S. grand strategy? How can we evaluate the feasibility of alternative grand strategies which are derived from these particular theories? Given the current unipolar international system and the simultaneous diffusion of threats away from traditional great powers toward more non-state actors and toward issues which transcend or cross the borders of sovereign territorial states, is realism even still relevant, both for explanatory purposes but also for normative purposes as a guideline or set of guidelines for formulating the grand strategy which will replace the Bush Doctrine, or what has been called the so-called Bush Doctrine. Now, let me summarize my argument in four points. First, by and large, I argue that U.S. grand strategy since the outbreak of the Second World War is largely consistent with the predictions of various realist theories. In other words, the United States has generally been responsive to the balance of power and to anticipated shifts in the balance of power, and that across different administrations there has generally been an effort uh, to make assessments about relative power and relative power trends. So grand strategy overall has generally been driven by 
decision makers' perceptions and calculations of the relative distribution of power, of anticipated power trends, and of the intentions of other states. Second point is that there is a basic, basic underlying continuity in the core grand strategic goals that the United States has pursued from 1940 to the present, from Franklin Delano Roosevelt to George W. Bush. And chiefly, during that period, the United States has consistently sought to maintain its preponderant position in the international system. Third, despite that underlying continuity in core grand strategic goals, there's been tremendous variation in the means that specific administrations have used to pursue them. This variation is driven both by systemic variables, but also by domestic variables, particularly domestic political constraints and mobilization hurdles. And fourth, where systemic constraints on the United States are relatively weak, in other words, in situations such as the one we are in, or have been in since 1990-91, where the United States is the only remaining superpower and spends more on defense each year than the next 45 countries combined, the first 10 of which are close U.S. allies, there's a tremendous amount of latitude for how the United States defines its core strategic interests. Systemic constraints are weak. And in this type of international environment, unit-level variables assume greater causal weight, for better or for ill. As a consequence, U.S. foreign policy, U.S. grand strategy, tends to be far more hubristic in its goals and far more short-sighted in terms of calculations of its likely consequences. So that's the basic argument that I plan to advance in this book in summary. And I'll talk about each of these in a little more detail. Now, I want to be very clear, however, about what I am not trying to do in this book and about what I am not claiming. First, as I see Alex went sitting there in the back of the room, pleasure to meet you. <laughs> I do not claim, contrary to popular belief, I do not claim that political realism in general or any particular realist theory in particular, can explain every single aspect of U.S. grand strategy. I do not. Contrary to popular belief, I'm an advocate of theoretical pluralism. I don't believe that realism can explain everything. There are areas in which realism and particular realist theories have a comparative advantage. There are other areas in which liberal theories, constructivist theories, cognitive psychological theories have much better explanatory power. Second, my mandate from Rutledge Press, however, is to make the case for realism. That's what they're paying me for. So I have a mercenary, purely mercenary, motivation for doing this. The purpose of the book is to make the case for the explanatory and the prescriptive power of different versions of realism. It's not necessarily to test realist hypotheses against alternative hypotheses derived from other schools of international relations theory or other epistemologies. How many of you, let me ask the question, 
uh, well, actually, let me move to the third caveat. Third caveat is this. This will not be a theory-proposing book. It will not be a theory-proposing book. There will probably not be a new theory that's going to come out of this book. Rather, it's going to be a synthesis of the contributions of various existing realist theories, including my own. Now, what I do hope to do in the book is to better specify the conditions under which systemic variables and unit-level variables are going to have a greater influence on U.S. foreign policy, but this is not primarily going to be a system, uh, not primarily going to be a theory-proposing book. Now, just out of curiosity, how many people in the audience, if anyone in the audience, is a Ph.D. candidate in political science? And how many, uh, if anyone here, is an assistant professor of political science? Okay. Do not do this at home. Do not do this at home. This is not a theory-proposing book. This is not a hypothesis-testing book. This type of exercise will not pass muster with any dissertation committee in any major political science department in the United States, nor will it pass muster with any departmental tenure and review committee. This is a post-tenure project. <laughs> a post-tenure project. Now that I have tenure, I can begin thinking about how I am going to increase my income <laughs> so I can pay for that vacation home in South Beach and the hurricane insurance, assuming I can get it, that's going to cover it. My, for a moment, I thought you said Iraq, Randy, and I was thinking, why on earth would I want a vacation home in Iraq? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, a raft. That would actually be appropriate. But this is basically a textbook project, so I just want to drive home that point once and for all. Final caveat. The Rutledge series, the proposed Rutledge series in international relations theory are going to consist of relatively short books. I've been given a very strict word uh, count from my editor. Can't be more than 120,000 words, including notes. So I have to be very selective in the types of theories which I examine and the cases which I examine. Uh, so this particular book cannot, cannot contain a detailed analysis of the grand strategies of each uh, one of the eight administrations' grand strategies since 1940. I have to be very selective. It cannot be the type of book that, say, C.M. Brown wrote, Faces of Power. It cannot be John Lewis Gaddis's Strategies of Containment. And we'll talk about my case selection in a few minutes. Why on earth does this matter? Or, as I was telling Sean Kay, the who in his right mind cares test. Well, first, there is the dominance of realist theories in the study of international relations, real or perceived. I think it's mostly perceived. I think it's mostly perceived. But at least in the United States, realism is perceived or is portrayed as being the dominant approach to the study of international relations in general and the study of international security and national security in general. Indeed, the most frequently cited people in most IR journals, no offense to those present, are still... Morgenthau, Waltz, Gilpin, and Mearsheimer. 
Ellen, and Alex, yes. You're, you're cited as well. You're cited as well. Yes. But unlike Morgenthau, you're still alive. So you have an extra, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you've got time. You've got time. Uh, but certainly, you know, this is the popular perception. Now, whether or not that's empirically true, uh, you know, I have my doubts. Somebody at the University of Stockholm did a study a few years ago uh, looking at citations to different international relations, uh, citations to different international relations articles in the top 20 journals, and he said, no, actually, it's liberalism, specifically neoliberal institutionalism, that is probably the dominant approach in the past 10 to 15 years, just judging by the number of sites. But be that as it may, that is the popular perception. The other perception, the other reason why it matters, as I wrote you know, six years ago, is that realism is the bete noir of every non-realist approach. As my dissertation advisor, Stanley Hoffman, you know, once said, every article, every book in international relations has to begin with a traditional wrecking operation. You have to basically show why everyone else is wrong or why everyone else's theory doesn't explain anything before proposing your own. So realism automatically becomes the, the pinata, and simply because it is the oldest of these various traditions. Second reason why this is important is I think that there is a widespread perception that the tradition of realpolitik and the policy prescriptions of particular realist theories, whether these be classical realist theories or neo-realist theories or neoclassical realist theories, are just antithetical to the sense of optimism and to the moralism which tends to pervade discourse on U.S. foreign and national security policy. You know, Otto von Bismarck, one of my favorite quotes, said, you know, there is a providence that, perfect, that protects idiots, drunkards, children in the United States of America. There was some truth to that. Uh, but there is this widespread perception that Americans don't like realism. They don't like realpolitik. It's it's alien. It's European. It's 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 French. It's you know German. It's, it's not what we do here. Now that's a debatable proposition. My colleague at the Fletcher School, Dan Dresner, has a paper in which he argues that you know if you actually look at surveys of American foreign uh, of, of um, surveys of the American public on foreign policy issues across a whole range of issue areas, you find out that the American public, or at least that segment of the public which was sampled and interviewed, are actually, or actually hold views which are much closer to realpolitik and to realist theories than do their elected leaders. So to the extent that liberal arguments or idealist arguments are dominant in the United States, they're probably only dominant at the level of elites. Not just government elites, but also uh, opinion makers, people like uh, newspaper columnists like Thomas Friedman in the New York Times. Now, whether or not successive presidential administrations actually pursue policies which are consistent with the broader tradition of realpolitik and the specific expectations of particular realist theories is an empirical question, and it's one that I want to address however imperfectly and however briefly in this book. The other reason why this matters is purely political. It's purely political, especially in light of the current war in Iraq. 
and especially in light of the recriminations, which I call the American national pastime, between the so-called liberal hawks, mostly in the Democratic Party, and the neoconservatives, mostly in the Republican Party, there really is a need for self-described realists to defend themselves and also to be very clear about what their theories explain and what they don't explain, and to engage in a debate about what our future grand strategy ought to be. It's not enough just simply to sit back and not participate in this debate. Now, the neoconservatives, I contend, have been putting forth a revisionist history of the Cold War, which portrays it entirely as an ideological struggle. I know Rick Herman and I disagree about this, but that's fine. It portrays it entirely as an ideological struggle. It portrays the demise of the Soviet Union as attributable solely to the ideological pathologies of Soviet communism and to the strong policies pursued during the Reagan administration. And it defines the security threats facing the United States and its allies primarily in ideological and in many cases Manichaean terms. There are good states, there are bad states. And with bad states, well, the reason they're bad, the reason they're pursuing policies which threaten us is because there's something deeply pathological about their domestic political systems and their ideologies. And ultimately, the only way to alleviate that threat to the United States and to its allies is through regime change, either peaceful or, if necessary, forceful regime change. And the only problem with the Bush doctrine, as uh, articulated in successive presidential statements and the two national security strategy reports, the only problem with the Bush doctrine was its execution in Iraq. The ideas were right. People like Rumsfeld just botched the execution. The other side of the aisle, you have the liberal hawks in the Democratic Party, people like Peter Beinhardt, who have provided much of the intellectual underpinning of the Bush doctrine. Actually, Beinhardt didn't, but people like Andy Moravchik and Marie Slaughter, people like Larry Diamond, who, according to my colleague Tony Smith in his new book, provided inadvertently much of the intellectual underpinnings of the Bush doctrine, the notion of conditional uh, sovereignty, uh, the reification of the democratic peace thesis to the status of a social scientific law, the notion that democratic transitions can be relatively fast and don't require a tremendous amount of investment uh, by the United States, etc., there's an effort by people on that side of the aisle to say, well, you know, some of the ideas in the Bush doctrine weren't that bad, but the execution was terrible. Now, if we get elected in 2008, we promise we're going to do the same thing, only we're going to be competent. And so my objective, or one of my objectives in writing this book, is to say, no, 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 no. It wasn't the execution that was the problem, although the execution was incompetent. The problem lies in some of the underlying ideas some of the underlying ideas, and the United States would be far better served by pursuing more moderate foreign policy goals based on assessments of relative power, not on categorizations of other states as totalitarian or, what is the new terminology, Islamofascist, or what have you. Okay, let me talk for a few minutes about the specific arguments that I'm going to make. And again, this book, as I said, is a synthesis both of my own work and the work of scholars in all of these other 
different uh, research programs. In many ways, this project arose because Craig Fowley and then his predecessor, Robert Tempio, said, I want you to turn, came to me and said, I want you to turn uh, your foreign policy course into a book. Now, by and large, my central argument is that U.S. grand strategy since the Second World War has been basically consistent with the expectations of different realist theories. Now, that said, of the four realist research programs which I am looking at, classical realism, the defensive and offensive variants of structural realism, hegemonic realism, and neoclassical realism, I happen to think that neoclassical realism is probably going to be the one that has the greatest explanatory power, in part because it's the least parsimonious of them. Now, what neoclassical realism suggests is that the distribution of power, the material distribution of power, sets parameters for how every state can define its core or ought to define its core strategic interests and sets parameters for the types of strategies that they're likely to pursue. But if you want to understand shorter-term decisions, if you want to understand variation in the specific types of diplomatic and foreign economic and military strategies that states are going to pursue at a given time, then you have to recognize that unit-level variables are also causally important. They perform an important intervening role. What does this suggest? Well, it suggests that in the short run, any state's grand strategy may not be objectively efficient based on a systemic analysis. And it also suggests that uh, it was probably not going to be predictable based solely on a post hoc analysis of how many great powers there happen to be in the international system or who happened to be spending more on defense, say, in 1937, based upon statistics which were only made available in 1972. So what does this mean? Well, what I argue throughout the book is that perceptions of power matter. Perceptions of power matter. But more importantly, perceptions of relative power trends matter. The foreign policy, the grand strategy of the United States and of every other state throughout history has always focused not just on an assessment of what the world is like now, but what it's likely to be tomorrow. And how do you anticipate that? So elite perceptions of relative power, power trends, and perceptions of other states' intentions play a crucially important role in U.S. grand strategy. However, that's not the only story. That's not the only thing that's causally important at the unit level. Successive administrations, Democratic and Republican, Republican rather, have been acutely aware of domestic political constraints on their uh, national security policies. They're aware of the need to mobilize and to sustain popular and congressional support for their preferred national security strategies. And as a consequence, this sometimes leads them to pursue policies which, again, from a purely systemic perspective, may be suboptimal. But they're acutely aware of this. Now, one of the other components of this argument, which I plan to make, and again, this is really an inductive observation based on my reading of U.S. grand strategy over the past 60 years, is that there's a general tendency on the part of the United States across different administrations to expand its diplomatic and military and foreign economic commitments abroad 
to pursue more expansive definitions of what the national interests are and to consider more active policies up to and including considerations of using military force, up to and including considerations of the use of preventive military action, including preventive war, in response to perceived or anticipated losses in relative power or status or reputation. This builds on my previous work in uh, balancing risks, in which I used hypotheses from prospect theory to underpin a realist theory of great power intervention in the periphery. Generally, the pattern in the United States has been when there's an adverse shift in the relative distribution of power or adverse or perceived adverse shift in the relative distribution of power, you pursue more expansionist policies. You spend more on defense, you pursue more expansionist policies. Now, the second part of this is also crucially important. And here's where I challenge some of the arguments advanced by my colleagues who call themselves offensive, offensive realists, which is that I've generally found that there have been relatively few instances of relative power maximization and opportunistic expansion by the United States outside of the Western Hemisphere. Within the Western Hemisphere, oh yeah, the United States has been the poster child for offensive realism. Outside the Western Hemisphere, no. It's generally been that the United States has pursued more assertive policies because the leadership at the time was fearful of either a loss of relative power in the absence of such action, or they feared a loss of reputation, specifically reputation for resolve. The final argument, you know, which I'll make, or the final point in this first argument, which I'll make, is that there's also a tendency on the part of American leaders, again, both Democratic and Republican, both Cold War and post-Cold War, and even pre-Cold War, to systematically overestimate the likelihood of low probability but potentially catastrophic international outcomes. One manifestation of that is the so-called domino theory, the fear that if you don't uphold your strategic commitments in one particular part of the world, adversaries will draw inferences that you lack resolve or capabilities to meet your other strategic commitments, and therefore you have to meet your strategic commitments in the first area, even if the objective, even if the objective matter at stake is relatively trivial. So that's the first part of uh, my argument. And again, it's gleaned both from my prior theoretical work and also from my examination of the foreign policies of different administrations over the past uh, 60 years. The second part of my argument, and what I think will be the most controversial part, is that there's been a basic continuity in U.S. grand strategic goals from 1940 to the present. A basic continuity. Obviously, the protection of the American homeland has been a core national security objective, to protect the U.S. homeland from physical invasion or from attack. Indeed, that's the core grand strategic objective of every state in the international system. However, I also argue that it has been the consistent policy of successive administrations to maintain the United States' preponderant position in the international system. In other words, the United States has not sought to maintain an equilibrium of power in the international system. It has always sought to acquire and to maintain a relative advantage over other great powers in terms of 
economic, military, and what my colleague Dale Copeland once called potential power. Potential power being basically any resource, whether it be physical or human, which could be translated into measurable economic output, but which hasn't yet been for whatever reason. This has been the consistent goal. Final uh, objective, core strategic objective, has been to prevent a single power or combination of great powers from establishing hegemony in what George Kennan called the other centers of industrial power. Western and Central Europe, Japan, specifically the offshore islands in East Asia, and especially the Persian Gulf. This has not changed since the days of Franklin Roosevelt. Yet, despite this underlying continuity of grand strategic goals, despite the fact that there was consensus across the Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson uh, administrations about these goals, there's been tremendous variation in the specific strategies which administrations have enacted. There's been tremendous variation, and that variation has been driven both by anticipated, by anticipated shifts in the relative distribution of power, by assessments of costs and risks, but also by domestic political constraints. The classic example of this would be the difference between the Eisenhower administration's approach to containment, its so-called new look, and that of the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, flexible response. The fact that Eisenhower and Dulles and Humphreys and Wilson were extremely concerned about the tremendous increase in U.S. defense spending as a percentage of gross domestic product during the Korean War and sought cheaper ways, cheaper ways to maintain U.S. defensive commitments to Western Europe. Greater emphasis on nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence versus the Kennedy administration strategy which said, well, no, it's foolish for the United States to uh, pursue a policy which automatically guarantees any conflict in Western Europe could escalate to a nuclear exchange. No, we need more options. We need to be able to respond to Soviet provocations at a much lower level of intensity. And so we have to have forces which are configured to do that. And the fourth and final argument which I advance in this book is that in ambiguous or permissive international environments, i.e. in a unipolar international system in which the gap in relative capabilities between the United States and everyone else is enormous and shows no signs of closing anytime soon, or at least anytime before I get that, that, that condo and the raft in South Beach. In this very permissive international environment, unit-level variables are probably going to have a greater causal impact on U.S. foreign policy than they would be in less permissive environments, say a multipolar environment, uh, such as the one that existed in the 1930s, or uh, cite Randy's argument, a tripolar environment, as he argues existed in 39, 40, 41, or certainly in a bipolar international environment. In this situation, where systemic constraints are relatively low, one would expect unit-level variables to have a much greater influence. The problem is that means that U.S. grand strategy is going to be more erratic. It's going to produce or it's going to 
uh, set forth more grandiose goals, and it's going to be more short-term. It's going to be more short-term, and the Bush doctrine, I think, as well as the Clinton administration's foreign policy, are illustrative of what happens in a permissive, uh, permissive environment. Now, let me talk very briefly about these, uh, these uh, various research programs, which I plan to explore in the book. Um, as you can see, I've tried to list the different research programs and some representative theories in, uh, in each of them. And let me just say at the outset, I fully recognize that classical realism, or what we now term classical realism, was never a coherent social science research program. Most classical realists engaged in two types of activities, either philosophical reflections on enduring problems of statecraft and international politics, or very detailed diplomatic and military histories, oftentimes drawing exclusively on the experience of the Western European great powers from the 17th century uh, to the end of the uh, 19th century. The other thing that I recognize is that there is no single classical realist version of balance of power theory. Uh, and one of the difficulties which I'm going to face in this project is trying to glean actual testable hypotheses from this. Basically, what classical realism would expect would be that imbalances uh, of power in vital areas in those five center centers of industrial uh, power, as well as the United States status quo intentions, would probably lead to a greater likelihood to the United States seeking alliances with other status quo great powers to restore that balance of power. Second research program which I plan to look at is offensive realism, specifically the versions of offensive realism put forward by John uh, Mearsheimer and uh, in a very influential article by Eric Labs in Security Studies on War Aims. Offensive realism argues that the international system basically provides incentives for states to pursue expansionist policies as the best route to security. Not because they're evil, not because they're greedy, but because the international system is so dangerous, so precarious, and so uncertain that the only way a state could guarantee its security is by trying to amass as much power as it possibly can, even if that means actively taking steps to weaken potential adversaries because it's uncertain about those adversaries or those potential adversaries' future intentions. And so what this would expect, or what this would yield, would be a hypothesis something like this, that the greater the United States' relative power advantages and the greater the international opportunities it faces, whether those be systemic opportunities, i.e. a low likelihood of escalation to war with another major state, or battlefield opportunities, well, why did you seize that territory? Well, because our army was right next door. Uh, that that type of relative power advantage and international opportunity is going to lead to a greater likelihood of U.S. expansion, greater efforts to weaken potential adversaries when the costs and risks of doing so are manageable. Defensive realism, associated mainly with the works of Jervis Van Ever Walt, bipolar distribution of power perceived and the perceived dominance of uh, defensive military technologies are going to have a lower likelihood or produce a lower likelihood of opportunistic expansion by the United States and will lead to greater moderation of U.S. strategic goals and strategies. 
hegemonic realism drawn mainly from Gilpin's work, but also by an influential article by Woolforth and Schweller, and also another one by Brooks and Woolforth. Preponderant or hegemonic power leads to greater likelihood of the U.S. establishing institutions that favor its interests and taking steps to retard the long-term growth of potential adversaries' power, but well short of major war. And finally, neoclassical realism, domestic constraints, threat perception. Relative power uh, acts through the uh, intervening effect of elite perceptions and high domestic constraints, which will generally lead to more expansive grand strategic goals, but more limited liability strategies. In other words, the United States will probably enact grandiose strategic goals, but would not be willing to invest a tremendous amount of blood and treasure in pursuit of those goals. Now, why on earth would I choose, or why on earth would I derive these particular hypotheses, and why are they structured in the way that they are? Well, that's because the organization of the book is such so that each one of these hypotheses is derived for the purpose of trying to uh, explain a particular era or a particular group of decisions in U.S. foreign policy since 1940. So the classical realist hypotheses are focused mainly on explaining how and why the United States moved from a strategy of unilateralism to one of covert involvement in the European theater in the Second World War to active coalition warfare with the British and the Soviets. The offensive realist hypotheses and the defensive realist hypotheses are designed to explain how and why the United States got involved in the Vietnam and the Korean Wars and why they pursued the types of policies that they did. Hegemonic realist hypotheses are focused mainly on explaining the types of security institutions that the United States created in the aftermath of the Second World War. And neoclassical realism, I'm using this as a lens to explain the types of strategies the United States has pursued since the end of the Cold War. It'll become a little more apparent in the next slide. Now, the book, as I said, is going to examine a set of critical junctures or major decisions in U.S. grand strategy. Each chapter is going to use a particular realist approach or, more specifically, one of the hypotheses on the previous slide as an analytical lens to try to understand why particular administrations set the goals that they did and why they pursued the particular types of strategies that they did. These are not hypotheses which are necessarily designed or intended to be tested against non-realist alternatives, nor do I have plans at this point to test classical realist, neo-realist, um, offensive and defensive realist sorry, hegemonic realist or neoclassical realist hypotheses against one another. Rather, these are just analytical lenses. The case studies, or rather the chapters, are going to be case studies which will employ process tracing and congruence uh, methods to assess the explanatory power of particular hypotheses. And the data, of course, will consist of the usual primary sources uh, and secondary sources. Now, the tentative outline or table of contents for the book is as follows. First chapter is going to talk or provide brief overviews of these four different schools of theories, talk about what they would lead us to expect about U.S. foreign policy in general, and talk about the specific hypothesis. The second chapter is going to focus on how the United States 
made the transition from taking a relatively hands-off approach towards Europe in the 1930s to becoming more and more actively involved, uh, including entering the war uh, on the side of the Allies. Hegemonic realism is going to focus both on the origins of containment. Chapter 3, hegemonic realism. Let me start again. Chapter 3 is going to focus on using hegemonic realism as a lens to both understand the origins of containment and the types of institutions which the United States created uh, in the years immediately after the Second World War. Chapters 4 and 5 are going to deal with the Cold War. Offensive and defensive realism both draw inspiration from Kenneth Waltz's theory of international politics, although they do differ from what Waltz writes in many areas, including their willingness, or rather the willingness of scholars in both camps to say we're interested in explaining both international outcomes and foreign policy, whereas Waltz says he's only interested in explaining international outcomes. But they produce a set of expectations regarding how the United States would define its interest in a bipolar international system and for why the 50-year rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union never escalated to a Third World War. Chapter 5, which draws most heavily on my previous book, Balancing Risks, explores how the United States got involved in the Korean and the Vietnam War. These were the two bloodiest conflicts for the United States throughout the entire Cold War. And it's here that I want to talk about the limits of both offensive realism and defensive realism. Both theories, in my view, have problems explaining why the United States, in a bipolar international system, would get involved in either of those places. Because they both build on Waltz's arguments about bipolar stability and about how, in a bipolar international system, smaller, weaker allies really don't matter because the two great powers can balance each other through internal means. And so it doesn't make any sense for them to get involved in conflicts to defend smaller, weaker allies because ultimately it isn't going to shift the the, uh, systemic balance of power. But then you have the conundrum. Well, if that's the expectation, if that's what your theory is expecting or predicting, then how do you explain the fact that both the United States and the Soviet Union spent a lot of blood and treasure for several decades defending smaller, weaker allies in different regions of the world? Chapters 6 and 7 deal with U.S. foreign policy, or will deal with U.S. grand strategy and foreign policy since 1990-91. Chapter 5 will talk mainly about the 1990s, the challenges facing the Clinton administration in trying to craft some type of successor grand strategy to containment, and the limits that the United States faced in exercising uh, its power, in part because of domestic constraints. And chapter 7 is going to talk about the Bush Doctrine and will deal with the debate, uh, some of the debates at least, about future U.S. grand strategies. So that is basically an overview of the book. As I said at the outset, this is very much a work in progress. It is very much a textbook project. I do not expect this book to win me promotion to full professor. Uh, I do hope that, knock on wood, for Micah, 
it will provide enough revenue uh, for me to make that down payment in South Beach before the entire thing is swamped because of rising o- ocean levels. Uh, but I welcome your questions, your comments, your suggestions. Just uh, be gentle with me. Uh, yes, uh, I want to start with Alex. I've, uh, by the way, I've always wanted to meet you. <laughs> sure. Yes, very much so. It might make sense to talk about why is this just about American foreign policy, and there's a trade-off really in terms of the scope of the theory on the one hand and the plausibility. The broader you make it, the less plausible, but the most plausible things in the U.S. and why just the United States. Secondly, maybe you're already planning to do this, but it might make sense to look at, instead of comparing the theory to U.S. foreign policy behavior, compare it to the theories that decision makers very easy to sort of say that behavior is implicit in the theory. Mm-hmm. But if you look at relations of the, of the academic theory to the lay theory, so to mm-hmm. speak, that might be an interesting kind of, um, it might strengthen the argument or weaken the argument, but that's just something maybe to think about. And finally, I think maybe this, from my standpoint, the most important thing would be um, you don't mention at all the normative aspect of this, mm-hmm. the ways in which its assumptions about the world uh, say something about who we are, what we want to be doing, what we should be doing in the world, and that kind of thing. And that seems important just intrinsically. I think students will eat that up. That's very, something that they very much care about. Um, it's directly policy relevant. In, in a sense, I guess I would encourage you to think about realism as a way of life, in a sense, um, rather than just as kind of social science hypothesis testing and that kind of thing. And that has broaden the reach of the book um, and engage students uh, even more effectively. Thank you. Those are very good suggestions. And thank you also for being gentle. Um, no, uh, what I wanted to do, you know, quite frankly, in the book, and I, I realize now that it didn't come across in the presentation, is to try through the case studies to to basically see to what extent these different hypotheses actually explain the types of decisions which leaders are making, or rather how they are making assessments about relative power and about U.S. particularly strengths and weaknesses and how they are affecting, uh, affecting or how the assessments of other states' power and intentions actually took place and then compare them to what these particular theories would say. So that, I, I realize that was not particularly clear in my talk, and I apologize for that. Um, I very much like the idea of trying to address the normative uh, issue, the normative uh, uh, aspects of realism. Uh, and again, you're right, because at the outset I said that you know, one of the reasons why realism is the bete noir. Uh, of of non academic of of academic uh, study of international relations and why it is seen as antithetical is because oftentimes its normative prescriptions are either caricatured or they're not understood properly they're not laid out properly by political realists and so I think it'd be important for me to try to try to engage in some of those debates here's what a realist or a classical realist approach to foreign policy says we ought to do. And these are some of the problems, some of the objections. Randy. Yes, Yes, I know.
I didn't recognize what you had for neoclassical realism. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the logic of that. It does seem to me that that's uh, the logic of neoclassical realists, if there were one. But I, what I, I think you've got, what you could do, you'd be very interesting, is you've got expansion. You have, uh, Ricardo has a theory about why and when states expand. Uh, Christensen has a theory about when states I think that I think that you're right. I think, and let me just say that one of the things that I think links your book, um, and certainly Christensen's and Zakaria's book, is that you basically all three have the same uh, the same intervening variable, and that intervening variable is state strength or state power. That you know, you're all identify the relative distribution of power as your explanatory variable, but you're arguing in your respective books that what really drives whether states are going to expand, over-expand, or under-expand, or in your case, under-balance, really depends on both the extractive capacity of central state institutions vis-a-vis -vis civil society, particularly in Zakaria's case. Uh, and in Christensen's case, it's domestic mobilization hurdles, and in your case, it's the degree of elite uh, consensus dissensus. Uh, and cohesion, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Randy. Yes, so the general. I'm sorry, was introduced to you before, and I. Sorry, Alex. Yes. Yes, there are. Look, different realists will come up with different lists of core assumptions. Indeed, that's become you know standard in any article, any book chapter that any of us write. We always have to begin with a set of core assumptions. There are a set of first principles, which all variants, which realism as a school of thought, going all the way back to Thucydides and Sun Tzu, share. Number one, international politics is inherently conflictual. Uh, that it is a world, it is basically politics, the nature of politics is a struggle for power and security in a world of scarce resources and pervasive uncertainty. Second, political life is inherently group-centric. It's inherently group-centric. Human beings can't face each other, or really don't face each other as individuals, but rather as members of some collectivity that commands their loyalty. 
whether that collectivity be a tribe, whether it be a city-state, whether it be a sovereign territorial state. Uh, third, the third uh, prime, uh, prime uh, or cardinal uh, rule of realism or cardinal assumption of realism is the notion that they reject teleology. History is the same thing over and over and over again. Human reason cannot create a world free of conflict. Indeed, conflict is endemic, endemic in the human condition. And finally, power matters. Power matters. And so regardless of what specific realist theory or what particular uh, social science research program we're talking about, all variants of realism, indeed, all realists going, again, all the way back to the cities, generally expect, as a baseline assumption, that bargaining outcomes are going to, most of the time, match the relative distribution of power between actors. Now, as I said, different research programs have different articulations, different auxiliary assumptions, different sets of core assumptions, but I would say that those three are the basic things that sort of unite all realists. We're not a sunny group of people. We really aren't. Uh, Sean. Mm -hmm. One of those critical ones, though, is in the modern context, the state. Mm -hmm. right? well, what happens to the other essential elements of realism if you take the state out as the primary actor? And so you still have these other variables that are critical. But let's say you're in a world where asymmetric threats are really driving your power assessments. And I would link that also to, to your or, or other non traditional. Mm -hmm. Intentions. Intentions and future trends. Yeah. How, how do you measure that? Mm -hmm. and how does, as, as an empirical matter, mm -hmm. how do you measure states' worry about other states' trends and intentions? And okay. That's a future problem as much as it is a, 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 as, as a social science. Mm -hmm. And empirically, how do you see evidence that states are also measuring themselves mm -hmm. in those kind of contexts? Okay, let me, let me answer the second part of your question first because in many ways that's the easier and simultaneously the more difficult question. Look, the only way you can try to get a grasp on what states, and when I talk about states, I'm speaking specifically about the top decision makers who make national security decisions. Okay, I'm not talking about members of the public. I'm not talking about members of the Congress generally. I'm talking about the president, the secretaries of state and defense, maybe their deputies, the undersecretary level, people who are actually uh, making major decisions of state. The only way you can try to gauge what their perceptions of other states' present and future intentions are is primarily by looking at primary sources, primarily by looking at intelligence estimates, by looking at internal memorandum, by looking at reports which they submit to one another, by looking at diplomatic cables. It's not the most theoretically satisfying answer to your question, but empirically that's just about the only way I know how to do it. And trying as best you can to reconstruct the actual decision-making process. Now in the absence, in the absence of such data, the next best thing that you can do is to try to discern 
what their thoughts of other states' intentions are from their public statements. But admittedly, those public statements may not reveal what their true assessments are. Instead, they may be designed entirely to sway external audiences, members of Congress, the American people, other states' governments. But that's the fallback position when you don't have primary source data available. There isn't an there isn't an elegant theoretical methodological answer to that question. You just try to discern as best you can through the actual data what they thought other states intended to do in the present and what they thought other states were likely to do in the future. Now, the first part of your question, first part of your question is important because I think that brings up an area in which you and I disagree. I do not believe that realism as a school of thought, as a political philosophy, or any particular realist research program, and remember I'm drawing a distinction between realism as a philosophy and these particular research programs, I do not believe that realism as a philosophy and any of these particular research programs need to be state-centric. I do not believe they need to be state-centric. Marcus Fisher, almost 20 years ago, had a very interesting article in International Organization about uh, neorealist theory in medieval Europe. And he said, well, yes, you you can make a very good argument that, yes, the sovereign territorial state didn't come into being until the earliest 1500. But if you actually look at the types of strategies which different actors of varying internal organizations varying sources of legitimacy were pursuing in Europe during the Middle Ages, you see that the broad parameters of it are consistent with a Waltzian neorealist type of argument. I mean, we can argue about whether or not that that was necessarily the case. But I certainly don't believe that realist arguments or the basic insights of particular realist theories are necessarily bounded by the existence or contingent on the preexistence of a particular form of political organization. Indeed, I would argue that when we talk about asymmetric threats, when we talk about weaker actors, whether they be states or non-state actors, actually being able to inflict harm and coerce much stronger actors, that's when things get interesting in the study of international politics. The other thing I was going to say is that, remember I said as a baseline assumption Realists expect that international bargaining outcomes or interunit bargaining outcomes are going to tend to mirror the relative distribution of capabilities between those units. That's a baseline assumption. And it's a useful assumption because it provides that baseline against which one, against which one can try to evaluate unexpected outcomes. This is what we would expect, all else equal. United States versus Al-Qaeda. G, you look at the resources which Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri have and the resources uh, that the United States has, you would think, all else being equal, the United States ought to be able to win a struggle with al-Qaeda, but it hasn't. Okay, what might explain that? What might explain that? Rick Herman.
we were talking mid-century, last century, we're really thinking of this in more physical terms just like that, that there were objective notions of power out there, that's what we call realists, mm -hmm. and that outcomes would reflect almost in a physical sense, like physics, borrowing from physics, that's why they could contrast with idealism, mm -hmm. uh, the outcome. Now you've introduced concepts like perception, you put a lot of wiggle room in here that separates the basic hardcore what I call realism, mm -hmm. uh, from something else, mm -hmm. which, which is how they understood it too back in the 50s. So when you said your second main assumption or the second common assumption of realism is that somehow groups form and people have a collective loyalty to a group, that's a phenomenon that Morgenthau said vitiated realism and ended its practical utility in the modern era. And he argued that with the rise of nationalism and what he called nationalistic universalism, uh, the possibilities for realist foreign policy, which he attributed to pre-national policies where you had states where they didn't have these domestic constraints and the king could cut deals mm -hmm. in a very realistic and amoral way, uh, functioning more like a corporate leader might. Mm -hmm. That era was over because now you're going to be an era of mass politics, which, which he called nationalistic universities. You're going to these mass crusades. Mm -hmm. And your entire period here, uh, the Cold War, Part of it. Well, I think that's that's you know certainly that you could make that charge about what I'm trying to do. Indeed, I mean people have made that charge about neoclassical realism in particular, and also defensive realism uh, over the past 15 years that you people are trying you people are hanging on to the word realist, but you're beg borrowing and stealing everything from liberals, institutionalists, constructivists, postmodernists. You know how can you talk about perceptions of power and still be a realist because Morgenthau on page 48 of Politics Among Nations said this, but then on page 238, he started talking about international organizations and international law, as opposed to on page you know, 300 something, he talked about the end of the nation state. Um, well, I have two, my, my two immediate responses uh, to that, to that type of argument is that number one, Morgenthau's Politics Among Nations and also this particular project illustrate the danger of trying to turn a course uh, into an actual textbook because inevitably you're going to contradict yourself in some places. Second of all, what Morgenthau was talking about with respect to the balance of power, you know, Morgenthau and I think, uh, I mean, there's somebody who I never met actually, but Morgenthau and I agree, you know, on this nationalism, generally a bad thing. Um, 
you know, Morgenthau and the other classic realists, of course, they pointed to the heyday of the balance of power in the 18th and 19th century. Why? Because, well, look, by and large, with the exception of the partition of Poland, which was a non-great power, none of the great powers disappeared from the map. None of the great power wars of the 18th and the 19th century resulted in the complete elimination of great power combatants. The casualty figures up until the First World War were relatively low as a percentage of states' populations. So for them, it was a desirable type of period to hearken back to. And indeed, much of what Morgenthau and also uh, Kissinger and Gullick and uh, uh, to a lesser extent Ken were lamenting was the, the end of that type of, of limited great power conflict. Why? Because states, governments were less autonomous vis-a-vis their populations than they had been during the age of monarchical sovereignty. Well, we're not going back to the age of monarchical sovereignty. I'm not advocating going back to the age of monarchical sovereignty. So there's a fundamental distinction that, yes, Morgenthau was very uh, concerned about the ideological dimensions of the Cold War, as was Waltz, as was Waltz, as were many of the others, as were Walt and, uh, Walt and Van Evra. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, in the 1980s, Walt and Van Evra were publishing pieces saying Latin America or Central America doesn't matter. Why are you so obsessed about what's going on in Nicaragua and El Salvador when neorealist theory tells you that in a bipolar system, you know, states balance against power, small allies don't matter. So there's, there was that problem. There's always been a tension, I think, in realist theory between the normative prescriptions and the actual empirical or explanatory aspect of it. Indeed, that's a big contradiction in Waltz. He has a theory that says, you, in a bipolar system, you ought not to pursue certain policies, but then in reality, you see both superpowers pursuing a whole set of policies which don't make sense from the standpoint of his theory. Well, there's something that's, something has got to give there. You either come up with a set of auxiliary hypotheses to explain why superpowers behave in the way that they did, or you have to revisit the normative prescriptions from your, from your theories and say, well, at least you know, normative prescriptions are just that. They don't necessarily flow from from the explanatory portion, or at least you know, what else I'm saying about the, about the particular theory. Now, as for labeling, you know, I will admit I have never been, I have never been a neo-realist. I have never been a strict Waltzian neo-realist. I believe that unit-level variables matter. I believe that systemic and unit-level variables interact. I believe in explaining the foreign policies of states. I'm not terribly interested in explaining the recurrence of war across different international systems, although that is clearly an important question. But that's not what I'm focused on, on explaining. I'm interested in explaining foreign policy and to explain variation in different states' foreign policy and variation in states' foreign policies over time. Sometimes you have to mix levels of analysis. Sometimes you have to come up with less parsimonious theories in which to do it. I call myself and classify my work as realist because I proceed from those basic first principles, which I talked about a moment, a moment, a few moments ago, that international politics, interunit politics, is inherently group-centric. That it's inherently about material power. That generally, bargaining outcomes will tend to mirror relative capabilities, although very often they won't. 
But those are some of the baseline assumptions that I have. So I, I see myself as fitting within, fitting within uh, you know, that broader tradition, although I fully recognize that not everyone is going to see me as fitting into that broader tradition, and that's just something I'm going to have to live with. Uh, did I answer your question as inarticulately as I? <laughs> yes, uh, the uh, lady in the black shirt. Sorry. You're the evil twin. Okay. All right. Yes. So what are you know, what does it say about realism on the other side of that? So mm-hmm. those states that are under the more constrictiveness mm-hmm. state of the post-Cold War system. Mm-hmm. You know, how are they reacting the way we would expect in that environment, either at the unit level or at the system level? And I think maybe you could do this with notes. I don't know how you yeah, a lot of it a lot of it's gotta be in the text. Like I've been told, you know, you can't have five page footnotes. Right. I am more given given the mandate I have from from uh, from Fowley at Rutger, at uh, Rutledge, I am more inclined to restructure the organization of the book so that I would be testing different hypotheses gleaned from these different uh, these different realist research programs and theories against each other to explain different areas or different aspects of U.S. foreign policy than to try to broaden the book to look at how systemic constraints and unit level variables interact to explain the grand strategies of the United States and a lot of other states as well. I think that that latter, for, uh, that latter approach from my standpoint would just simply get to be too unwieldy. Now, of course, you know, given my supposition that because systemic constraints on the United States are relatively lax, in part, large part because of the sheer power disparity between the United States and everybody else. Of course, in explaining that, in explaining how that actually plays out, of course, I'm going to have to touch on why the United States faces far different systemic constraints after 1990 than does post-Soviet Russia, or does France, or Germany, or Israel, or South Africa, or wherever. It's going to have to be part of the narrative. Uh, but I'm more inclined to do the former. Indeed, I think doing the former, testing these variants or testing hypotheses and these various uh, theories against one another to explain each one of these epochs or explain U.S. decision-making and the strategies selected in each one of these critical junctions or epochs, uh, it'd probably be something that I would be more comfortable doing 
in part because I've done it before, uh, and in part because I think it probably might be a little more useful for class classroom uh, adoption. But but that's a very good suggestion, Amy. I got so involved with what you were talking about, I let uh, my administrative role slip out of my mind <laughs> and let most of the crowd slip away because we usually stop about 1.15. Uh, okay, so I don't take it personally then. No, I don't want everyone to be gone before we get a chance to thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for it's having me. And thank you for your questions and your suggestions. I understand. Don't worry about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a good sign of how we were that I lost track of what I was supposed to be doing. It's really been a